0: Well, relying upon God this evening for His help and guidance, let's turn to Revelation chapter one verses one through eight. Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the first chapter, the first eight verses. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word beginning. In Revelation 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, let us now focus our attention with God's help upon verse 1 as we once again uh, are seeking to get a handle on the book of Revelation, some of the basic principles of interpretation of this book, so that we can participate and be the beneficiaries of that special blessing for those who read and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep them and observe them in applying them to their practical Christian life. We see verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants, things which must shortly take place. And He sent and signified it by His angel to His servant John. Now we said last time that if everything we've seen from Genesis all the way now to the book of Revelation is correct, if all of our interpretations or at least most of them are correct, that Jesus Christ is as the seed of Abraham has inherited all nations, and if he has promised to disciple all nations in history prior to his return at the last day, then we should expect to see a major emphasis upon New Testament history and upon the work of the ascended Christ to impact New Testament history in this way. And as we observe, that's exactly what we find in the book of Revelation, a book devoted to the, the work of Christ in advancing his kingdom throughout New Testament history until time is no more and he returns in glory. And so we see that the main thrust of our sermon series is brought really to consummation and completion with a study of the book of Revelation. We've seen that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. And the book of Revelation sets forth that expansive timeline from Christ's first coming to His second coming. And just to review very briefly what we saw last time, we saw that the book of Revelation employs predictive prophecy to forecast major events, periods, and developments in New Testament history, similar to the book of Daniel, setting forth the, the various images and beasts that would uh, set before God's people the, the great developments from Daniel's day till the first coming of Christ. So you've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, and in that fourth kingdom, uh, the feet, the ten toes, the iron and the clay... Christ would be born. And so you can see that that connecting the end of the Old Testament with the first coming of Christ, that inter advental period, that period where there are uh, no prophets arising to write new scripture passages, similar to the situation we have now, we have the book of Daniel giving us a general forecast of what to expect. Not the sort of details you're going to read in the newspaper every day, but general major events, periods, and developments. We, we considered that from the introduction to the book, which says that the content of this book uh, focuses on things which must shortly take place. John writing in the first century, we think toward the end of it, 95, 96 AD, we looked at that a bit. Uh, but John is saying that these things in the book of Revelation will shortly take place. And we looked at a number of passages where that type of language is used and in which it refers not to every single thing in the prophecy taking place, but the timeline as a whole comprehensively being initiated. The inception of the prophetic timeline. So we understood this to be John saying that this book contains events that will happen, not mere ideas or principles or parables, but rather specific major events, periods, and developments in New Testament history, uh, the sum total of the timeline of which will be initiated and come to pass in John's own day, or in, in a short time after the writing of this book. Not that everything in the book would happen, but the inception of the timeline. And we took the verb in the inceptive sense those things which must shortly begin to take place. And so those who say, well, this book is just a general picture of ideas and principles and parables about the glory of Christ, uh, they may find helpful applications of particular texts, and and we certainly appreciate the commentaries and sermons that we've heard uh, from those who take that view, but it doesn't jive with verse 1, and we need to jive with verse 1 if we're going to interpret this book properly. Things which must happen. These are historical events, predictive prophecies. And we saw that the historical timeline in the book of Revelation extends far beyond the first century. And we gave a number of objections and arguments against what's known as preterism or even partial preterism that sees the bulk of the prophecies in this book as being fulfilled prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, we're not going to rehash all of that, um, but we considered much of the internal evidence for the fact that this book, as Irenaeus tells us in the early church, was actually most likely written by John in the 90s A.D., long after the destruction of the temple. Now, the the preterists and the partial preterists will say, uh, but the temple is still standing in the book. We didn't deal with that, so I'm just adding that. They'll, they'll bring that rejoinder, just to be fair. Uh, they'll say, listen, the book mentions the temple. Well, the book also mentions the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody's going to say it was written before the Babylonian captivity. So we have to understand these things are figurative. References to the temple and to angels with incense and the Ark of the Covenant, so on and so forth. These things are used figuratively. But the point is, we've seen that throughout this book, even... Even um, any sort of preterist who would have any ounce of orthodoxy would have to acknowledge that Jesus will return again, and we would hope they would see that his return is recorded at the end of this book, come Lord Jesus. So clearly part of the book extends beyond the first century, and it would be unnatural to say that 90% of it is about AD 70, and then all of a sudden this is tacked on at the end that Jesus will return. The fact is that it begins in John's day and it ends with Christ's return. And the most natural perspective is that it extends between those two major uh, time markers. So we, we considered a number of other things. But we also then looked at the fact that the historical timeline of the book of Revelation includes more than merely the events preceding Christ's return. And this is where we want to pick up because we didn't really develop this. The historical timeline in the book of Revelation includes far more than merely the events just prior to the Lord's return. So whereas we had to deal with preterism before, now we're having to deal with futurism, which says, no, it's not all mostly in the past, but it's basically all in the future. You've got the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, but many uh, evangelical Bible-believing people would then say pretty much the rest of the book is just uh, a, a predictive prophecy of the tail end of New Testament history just before the Lord's return. Now, the problem with that is, as we've said, according to John, the timeline is being initiated shortly, quickly. It's, it's about to take place. The beginning of the timeline of what's recorded in this book is not waiting 2,000 years until the Jewish state in 1945 or something like that. But the prophetic time clock, as it were, is beginning even at the very end of the first century. These things are happening quickly. Not the whole timeline, but the beginning of the timeline. And you can see that again, verse 3. Uh, For the time is near... The time in which this timeline will be initiated is near. It's near in John's day at the end of the first century. You look at chapter 1 and verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are. So that could be the letters to the seven churches. The things that are. These are present contemporary churches of the Apostle John. The things that are and the things which will take place After this, so the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So there seems to be a present, but also an ongoing future, and the timeline is about to be initiated, so it's not merely hitting pause for 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden now we're in the end times, and we're looking through the book of Revelation as if it had no relevance for the last 2,000 years. It describes the whole period between the first and second or at least from John's day till Christ's return in fact if you look at uh, chapter 4 verse 1 after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this So you've got the present, you've got the future, but notice it's not the distant future, at least it's not limited to that, but these are things that are happening in chronological sequence, an organic timeline between the comings of Christ. And if it were the case that Revelation deals with John's own day, and then says nothing about the last, say, 1900 years, and then it only picks up sometime in the 20th century, they say. Or sometime maybe in our own day. And we're supposed to pick up the timeline, but the Bible has no predictive prophecies for that intervening uh, nearly two millennia. Understand that if that's your position, there's an immense burden of proof on your shoulders because that would be the first time ever in the history of this earth, that there was a period of time wherein there were no prophets and no prophecies. It would be the first time in human history where there were no prophets and no prophecies. We know that the period between the end of the Old Testament and and that 400 year period of silence, as they call it, prior to the ministry of John the Baptist, that 400-year period, there were no prophets, but there were prophecies of Old Testament books like Daniel that gave the people of God a prophetic timeline to guide them through it. So they had no prophecies, but no prophets, but they did have prophecies. And the fact of the matter is that if from John's day up until 1945, or up until our own day, uh, if there are no direct prophetic revelations to guide us through that would be the first time in human history that there would be no prophets and no prophecies remember God told Abraham shall I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham Abraham the friend of God Uh, Amos 3 verse 7 the Lord says that he essentially doesn't do anything in terms of major historical events without addressing it through his servants the prophets So God does not withhold the major themes of history from his people. Either he gives them a prophet who has a contemporary ministry to interpret these things, or he provides a prophetic outline of some kind, a lens through which his people may see what is to come. So maybe it is the first time ever, but that's a pretty hefty burden uh, to bear in demonstrating that case. Now, the basic structure of the book of Revelation is very important. This book is highly intimidating, and rightly so. I'm intimidated by it in a sense I hope you are too. There's something, hopefully, of uh, humility and we come to the Word of God and we find a challenging book like this. I know some of you have been studying uh, the book of Zechariah in your midweek And that's an intimidating book. I find myself very much intimidated by some of the prophecies in that book. It's very challenging sometimes to understand exactly what the Spirit is communicating to us. And so the book of Revelation is very much like that. It's intimidating. And yet there is a way for us to read it, know it, and understand it, and apply it in a way that does add a blessing to our lives. And in order to do that, we need to just begin with the basics. So many times, we start with the most complex conundrums of the book, and we get so confused, or we fall into something like the the partial preterist movement, which focuses on some of those most challenging passages, and has these ready-made answers for people that maybe have no idea what the structure of the book is, and, and couldn't name Uh, or or outline the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, and and the main skeletal structure of the book, but they know who the Antichrist or the beast is, and Nero Caesar, and all these sort of one-liners from the partial preterist camp, but I don't, in, in my own experience, I don't see a ton of emphasis on the structure of the book as just building the foundation of our understanding of what the Lord is teaching us here, and so we need to look at this basic structure, and it's Twofold. It's twofold. First, there is the skeletal timeline. The skeletal timeline, which in some sense begins with the scroll that has the seven seals. Uh, But I just want to say, in terms of the structure of the book, you can really see it beginning with the seven letters to the seven churches. Not that these are seven ages of the world or something like that. Some people try to say that too, but there's no evidence for that. These are literal churches. But in terms of the structure of the book, you have the seven letters. And then there's the scroll that only Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, can unseal and open for the people of God. And, and that scroll has seven seals. And so each seal is opened and there's a further revelation of certain things taking place in connection with those seals. So you've got the seven letters, the seven seals, and in the seventh seal, you have then seven trumpets. So the structure is such that uh, the, the seven seals are open, but in the seventh seal, the seven trumpets are included in the seventh seal. It's like one of those Russian dolls where you open it and then there's something inside of that and then there's another one inside of that. Seven seals, seven trumpets in the seventh seal and then it it appears that in connection with the seventh trumpet you have then seven bowls. Seven bowls or in the King James I think it says vials but it's bowls or vials of judgment that are being poured out. So the seals, the trumpets and... The bowls, seven of each, and that's the skeletal outline, the skeletal structure of the book. It's important for us to understand that. Now, in between these um, skeletal timelines, again, I'm arguing for the case here that there's a sequence and a chronology to the book. We'll get to that later. But just taken at face value, there is sequence. The first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. And in the seventh, you start again with the seven trumpets. So, in this skeletal structure, you find that in between the seals, trumpets, and bowls, there are these visions that provide additional explanation and clarity. And we'll get to that in a moment. That's the second aspect of the the structure of this book. So you've got the skeleton, seals, trumpets, and bowls, and then in between, intermixed in between these seals, trumpets, and bowls, you have visions that are meant to help increase our understanding as to what the things in these seals, trumpets, and bowls specifically are saying. Now, after the seven bowls, you have a number of prophecies in uh, especially at the very end, chapters 20 through 22, where you have the thousand years, and then the period after the thousand years where Satan is let loose, and then you have the final judgment and the eternal state, and God's people conclude crying out, come Lord Jesus. But the seven letters, and then the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, that's the skeletal structure. Now let's just look at that first aspect Very briefly, just a broad overview. Not getting caught in the weeds, hopefully. Uh, The seven seals. If we were to look at the seven seals, just from a bird's eye view, just looking at them as a whole, the major themes. And again, many of you are on Bible plans, and so you were just in the book of Revelation, perhaps through the month of December. So some of this may be... uh, Something that, reco- that comes to your mind that you can easily recollect. For others of us, we may, we may need to follow up and go back into the book and study it. But if you look at the seven seals as a whole, there's an emphasis on conquest. They begin with, we believe, Christ riding on the white horse, conquering and to conquer. And so, He's, he's advancing His church in a seemingly unprecedented way throughout the nations. We also see an emphasis then, after the, message, the, the emphasis on conquest, it brings our attention to persecution and affliction. And even there are souls under the altar of people that have been martyred for their faith. So there's an emphasis on the affliction and persecution of the people of God throughout the society where the gospel has conquered. And there's an emphasis toward the end of the seven seals on the judgment of God and of Christ against the wicked persecutors. So those are some of the main themes. Conquest, advance, persecution, and divine judgment and vindication. Next you have the seven trumpets, which are all included in the seventh seal. In the seven trumpets, and again we're also informed by the surrounding visions, especially the visions that come In the middle, and then after the seven trumpets, they point our attention to apostasy. We have stars falling from heaven. We have the uh, king or prince of the bottomless pit leading people astray, opening the gates of hell and tyrannizing the world through spiritual darkness. Uh, We have an emphasis upon apostasy, Uh, the beast, the false prophet, apostasy, and persecution at the hands of the apostates, the beast, the false prophet. Again, those are the visions, not the not the trumpets, but I'm just saying if you read through the trumpets, you see an emphasis upon apostasy, persecution, and then toward the end, reformation. The two witnesses are raised up. A tenth of the city falls. The whole city doesn't fall. That comes later. A tenth of the city falls, and there's a partial judgment And blessing upon uh, judgment on the enemies, blessing uh, upon the people of God. Then you have the seven bowls. And here you have decisive judgment on the apostates and the persecutors. The seat of the beast is judged, the city of Babylon eventually falls. You have decisive judgment, one bowl after another, in bringing wrath and judgment upon. The enemies of God and the apostates who persecute the people of God. Then you have the thousand years and then the period after the thousand years, and as I said, the final judgment. So that's the skeletal structure, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And then you also have, as I said, the supplemental visions, the explanatory visions, the second major aspect of this twofold structure. And so, just to name a few of these, we're not going to dive in and and look at each one, but just, again, to help us with some of the basics of how to read this book. What do we make of the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls? Well, let's look at the visions that surround them. You can see from chapter 4 on, there's a vision of a heavenly throne, of the Lamb opening the scroll, of a remnant of God's people being sealed, prepared perhaps for a period of judgment. You then have uh, robed martyrs who have been persecuted for their faith. You have an edible scroll that John eats. You have the two witnesses that cry out and and prophesy the truth of God and are slain and then raised to life. You have the, the vision of the dragon seeking to attack the woman who's pregnant with a male child. You have the beast And then the second beast, the false prophet, arising out of the sea and out of the earth. You have the lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 representing his people. You have various angels proclaiming various things in various ways at various times in these visions. You have the scarlet woman uh, or harlot riding the scarlet beast. Uh, You have the fall of Babylon. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ advancing on the white horse, defeating the beast and the false prophets, sending them into the lake of fire. And then you have the thousand years, the period after the thousand years, uh, the final judgment, the heavenly city. All of these visions that are meant to qualify and help explain the content of the skeletal timeline that is presented in the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Now, I'm not so foolish as to think that just those basic principles are going to unlock every single uh, mystery and clarify every single question. In fact, it's interesting, at one point, John hears the seven thunders, and he goes to write it down to tell us what they are, and uh, he's told, don't write down the seven thunders. And our tendency, as just as fallen human beings, even as believers, though, is to want to know what the seven thunders are. I mean, forget about the seals, the, the trumpets, the bowls, the seven letters of the churches. You know, we, we, we rack our brains staying up late into the night. What are, what are the seven thunders? See, we're not supposed to know. And, and there are a lot of things in this book that we are supposed to know that, that nevertheless, in God's providence, we maybe are not ready to know. And so we need to build on the basic foundation. Uh, Whatever view of this book you have, you need to know there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You can find perhaps online or make one yourself uh, a chart or columns with parallel columns where you can uh, look at each of the seven seals and then align them with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And oftentimes you find that there are connections between uh, the the fourth trumpet, for instance, and the fourth trumpet bold judgment. And those are the things that the Bible encourages us to do, to, to study diligently this timeline and these visions so that we can get a better sense of these things. Uh, because the first time that we probably read Daniel's prophecy of the well, Nebuchadnezzar's statue of a man that presents the four kingdoms that would arise, or some of Daniel's prophecies in chapter 7. The first time we read those, we probably had no idea what they referred to unless we had a good commentary. And yet the fact is that most evangelical Bible-believing commentators are pretty much in agreement that those four kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So just because it seems daunting at first doesn't mean that we can't come to a solid conviction and understanding of what these passages mean, what these visions mean, what these seals, trumpets, and bowls mean mean beware of any interpretation of this book that doesn't emphasize that basic yeoman's work of learning what each of these things uh, just even at face value what the seals are what the trumpets are what the bowls are what do these things refer to Uh, what are the connections between them just in terms of reading and evaluating and analyzing your english bible beware of any view of the end times that tries to take a shortcut on that sort of diligent labor. Uh, Now, these visions portray sequential chronological developments in New Testament history. There are some who would say that the visions and the skeletal timelines, seals, trumpets, and bowls, are merely parallelisms, that these are just recounting the same events, the same period of time. Each of them speaks of the period between Christ's first and second coming and just rehashes the same thing again and again and again. And there is something of parallelism in these uh, skeletal outlines and in these supplemental visions. There is something where you look at one and then you cor- it corresponds with the other column, and you can say, wow, these things are connected. There's no doubt about that. It's not foolish to see parallelism here, and we can certainly sympathize with that trajectory, that perspective. However, if we look at these passages, especially the visions, at face value, we see there's an inescapable sequence. That doesn't decide our interpretation of every single detail. Again, we're just laying a groundwork But I want to show you this evening that there are what I believe are unavoidable instances of sequence from one section to another, from one vision to another. And let's look at a few of these. Again, without even identifying the main antagonists and the main characters, the dragon, the beast, the harlot, uh, without identifying them specifically other than saying, of course, the dragon uh, is, is the devil... Uh, let's focus on some of these things. So, chapter 12, verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3. Here we see a reference to this great red dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, it's important for us to realize here, this is the devil, but it's not just the devil as the devil. Clearly, the book of Revelation is telling us that this is a devil, this is the devil, in a particular aspect of his work and his agenda on earth. Why? Because... He's referred to here as having seven heads and ten horns. Now, remember we saw in the book of Revelation, or excuse me, the book of Daniel, that the, the, the beasts that are used there to, to speak of uh, the various kingdoms of the earth use similar imagery. And we, we were reminded in our series on Daniel, our, our sermon on Daniel, that Uh, The kingdom of Rome is presented as the feet of the statue, which would have had ten toes, and the toes are said to be iron mixed with clay, and it's a kingdom that's divided. And we said that the kingdom of Rome was divvied up into ten subsections, and when Rome fell, it was then divided into these ten kingdoms. We know that Rome itself is a city with seven hills, And in the book of Revelation, it's clear, if we could go to the cross-references, that the seven heads uh, that appear in the book of Revelation indicate the seven hills upon which the woman is seated. It's the seven-hilled city of Rome. And in fact, in the history of the Roman Empire, there were seven forms of civil government. I don't have time to pursue that. But essentially, Rome has, throughout this period up to John's day, if you look at it, Uh, the Roman Empire had seven uh, kingships, seven forms of government. In John's day, they had the sixth of those seven forms of government, which was the Caesars, and then the seventh came after the fall of Rome. So, seven heads, seven hills, ten horns, ten kingdoms. So, clearly this is indicating Satan and yet Satan as he's working through the Roman Empire and notice that the crowns are on the seven heads not the ten kingdoms so while Rome was still standing as an empire in John's day it was the seven-hilled city of Rome with its Seven forms of government leading up to the sixth you know the sixth was, was the Caesar, but it was those forms of government in Rome, the Seven Hilled city, which held sway over the ten kingdoms. But notice the transition to chapter thirteen. When the dragon's effort through the Roman Empire has failed, he's seeking to persecute the woman, persecute the church and her offspring who keep the commandments of God. And now look at chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. So no longer is the seven hilled city of Rome in control of the government, that has fallen. And it's been decentralized to the ten kingdoms that constituted the Roman Empire. And so the crowns are on the ten kingdoms, on the ten horns. And on the seven-hilled city or the seven heads is a blasphemous name. We could spend time uh, pursuing that. But my point is notice the transfer of the crowns from the city of Rome to the ten kingdoms upon the fall of rome that my friends is sequence and chronology here's another example chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 we have a reference to this woman who gives birth to the male child Uh, she also in verse 17 gives birth to the rest of her offspring the people of god so this is the church from which we have Christ who rules the nations and all those who are in Christ. The rest of her offspring. And so you have the church. Verse 5 tells us, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and His throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. She's being chased by the dragon and She goes into the wilderness, flees into the wilderness as a persecuted church where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Okay, so verse 17 tells us the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So here you have the dragon with the crowns on the seven heads, Rome attacking and persecuting the church of Jesus Christ throughout the empire. And that church is referred to as this woman, and she's in the wilderness. But now uh, look with me at chapter 13, and verse seven. Here we have the beast, and he is making war with the saints to overcome, to overcome them. Actually, we're going we're gonna to skip, we're not going to say more about that. Turn to chapter 17, verse 3. Chapter 17 and verse 3. Remember, the woman is being persecuted, and where is she? She's in the wilderness. The persecuted, faithful church keeping God's commandments. Chapter 17, verse 3, "...so He carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness." And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the, of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, notice, I marveled with great amazement. John was persecuted. John was persecuted by the great red dragon with the seven heads, with the t- seven crowns on them. He was on a penal colony while he's writing this. John is not amazed merely by persecution. What he's amazed at is that the woman who was a faithful persecuted church in the wilderness comes out of the wilderness riding on the scarlet beast drunk with the blood of the saints and filled with a cup of abominations of idolatry and harlotry and covenant unfaithfulness to her Lord and to her God. An apostate church. She goes from being the persecuted, faithful church to the persecuting, unfaithful harlot. I would say there's sequence there, wouldn't you say? And John sees so much sequence, he marvels. How could this possibly happen? That the woman, the church, would be drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. This amazes John the Apostle. And... uh, So much more could be said. um, But we'll go to the next one. Uh, Further along in chapter 17, verse 12. Notice the sequence. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, because Rome hasn't fallen yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast, better translated at the same time, at the same hour with the beast. Not for one hour, as if they receive authority just for one hour, but at the same hour, at the same time, they receive authority as kings with the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Remember the dragon is Rome, has the 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 crowns on the seven heads, that fails, so Satan raises up the beast, where it's the decentralized empire with the crowns on the ten kingdoms, and the, the ten kingdoms are ruling with the beast. And the ten kingdoms of essentially Europe give their power and authority to this persecuting beast, and he makes war with the saints. But if you follow along, and again, we're not seeking to identify the meaning here, but but the sequence. Verse 15, the waters that you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Roman Empire. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So there's a period of time where the ten kingdoms are in league with the beast and with the harlot, and she's riding on the beast. And this harlot and this beastly character and the ten horns upon the beast are all in league together. The decentralized kingdoms of Europe and the beast and the false prophet and the harlot, they're all on good terms until God turns those ten kingdoms against this idolatrous institution and he uses the nations to bring it down uh in in a a variety of ways that's sequence first they're on the same team she's riding the beast and now the horns of the beast are opposing her and seeking to destroy her with fire that's sequence let's look at another example uh there are several earthquakes in this book but I want to point your attention to two of them that seem to correspond in terms of sequence. Chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And as you're turning there, understand, there's no substitute for a 200-sermon series on this, and... and uh, some of you might leave the church if we attempted that. But, but the fact of the matter is there's no substitute for going through these things with a fine tooth comb. Again, I'm just giving general observations here that point to the historical sequence. So chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here and they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. This is the two witnesses that were killed. Right? Well, I won't even say what, what I think it means, but they're killed, they're raised up. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. This comes at the tail end of the seven trumpets, a period of apostasy and persecution, but now the witnesses for the truth are raised up, and... God sends a massive earthquake and a tenth of the city, that wicked city of Babylon, spiritual Sodom and Egypt, as is elsewhere referred to in in this book. That wicked city experiences an earthquake and a tenth of the city falls. So there's a partial victory for the people of God against their persecutors. A tenth of the city falls. In other words, Uh, You think of the tithe. It's the first fruits of our increase. This is the first fruits of the victory of God's people against their persecuting apostate enemies. The first fruits. A tenth of the city falls. But notice as you get further along into the full-fledged judgments that are represented in the bowls, that you come to chapter 16 and verses 18 and 19. And here, we're we're in the seventh bowl. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. So the first one was a significant one. A great one that caused the tenth of the city to fall. But this one's the greatest one there's ever been, you see. And it says... Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found and so on and so forth. And then you have the fall of Babylon recorded or at least in the, in the visionary form in chapter 18. So. The the first earthquake is great. It causes the first fruits of judgment, but then there's an even greater earthquake, speaking figuratively, I believe, of God's judgment, but uh, an even greater judgment, a greater earthquake, that's specifically said to be the greatest there's ever been, and the entire city falls, not just a tenth of it. That's sequence. That's chronology. Another example. Uh, In Chapter 20, we have a transition from Satan deceiving the nations to the nations no longer being deceived during the thousand years as it's presented in the vision. And then it says, after the thousand years, Satan is let loose again from the bottomless pit to resume deceiving the nations and gathering Gog and Magog against God's people. So there's, there's this sequence, deceiving the nations. Then they're undeceived, and then they're redeceived. But notice throughout this book, there, is, uh, there are numerous references to the period in which Satan is deceiving the nations. For instance, chapter 9, verse 1 Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. Okay, and later we're told that um, toward the tail end of, of this section, we're told that Verse 11, they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past, but still two woes are coming. By the way, there's sequence as well. Uh, But even if we were to limit ourselves to commentators who entirely reject the approach that I'm setting before you, even if we limited ourselves to dispensationalists, if we limited ourselves to idealists, if we limited ourselves even to partial preterists, it's even possible that most of them would agree that this is a reference in some way, shape, or form to Satan. The prince, the king of the bottomless pit, standing at the door of the bottomless pit, unleashing all of hell's fury. And if you read the commentaries, they emphasize Satan's deception through the darkness and smoke of the pit. So, you read, for instance, Joel Beakey's commentary. Very different interpretive approach than what we're talking about this evening. But he describes this as Satan essentially deceiving the nations. You look at chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Present tense. He was cast to the earth and His angels were cast out with Him. Then then go to chapter 13, verse 14. Speaking of the the devil's right-hand man, if you will. uh, The beast and and then the, the false prophet. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs which He was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So, deceiving the nations. Chapter 18, verse 23. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. This is Babylon falling. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. So that's during the reign of terror of Babylon. Babylon. Uh, Most people would take that as as the enemies of God. Even the idealists would take it as God's enemies throughout this age. Deceiving all the nations. Chapter 19, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Deception. And then you come to chapter 20. When uh, Satan, verse 2, we're told that the angel laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit. So chapter 9 says Satan's got the key to the bottomless pit, and he's opening it and letting all the demons, letting all of hell's fury loose into the world. But here, Satan's locked up in the bottomless pit. See, there's clear sequence there. Those two things are not the same. And you can see that he's shut up. A seal is set on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released a little while. And you go to verse 7. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. So I'm not seeking to get into the nuts and bolts of your millennial view or anything like that, but I'm simply saying... Clearly, all the way up to chapter 19, Satan is consistently deceiving the nations, and in connection in some way with this thousand years, some would say for the whole thousand years, others would say it increasingly takes place that by the end of it, there's a massive period where Satan's not deceiving, but clearly in connection with the thousand years in some way, that comes to an end, that deception of the nations. And then he's loosed and resumes and redeceives the nations. That is sequence in the book of Revelation. And you can even see it in the defeat of the enemies of the church. For instance, chapter 19, verse 20. After Christ comes on the white horse with the sword out of his mouth. We're told, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark. So chapter 19, you have the beast and the false prophet thrown alive into the lake of fire. But let's look at the destruction of the other enemy, the more significant foe of God's people, the devil himself. Look at chapter 20. And verse 10, after fire comes down from heaven at the return of Christ, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, now listen to this, where the beast and the false prophet are. I know that word are in your New King James is italicized. That doesn't mean they're emphasizing it. That means it's been added by the translators, but it is a present tense thing. It's an accurate translation to put that word in there. The devil is cast into the lake of fire at the return of Christ, where the beast and the false prophet are. That is chronology, that is sequence. It's telling us that at the end of chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the slammer. And then chapter 20, and the nations are undeceived, and then they're redeceived. And at the very end, Satan is thrown into hell where the beast and the false prophet are waiting for him. There's a gradual, sequential defeat of the enemies of Christ. And, and, And the text just seems to highlight that. And so these are some examples Of sequence and uh, you can also see sequence in the skeletal timeline Uh, with all of its seeming parallelisms when you go from seals to trumpets to bowls a lot of parallelisms but there is sequence let me give you some examples of that and again this is crucial because we're not going to be able to interpret the book properly if we don't understand the structure if the book is repeating the same parallel timeline, we need to know that, or we're going to misinterpret it. If there's sequence and chronology, we need to know that, or you know, we can have some pious musings on a passage or two, you know, the eyes with the flame of fire, the sword coming out of the mouth, but we're not actually studying the book in its context and in, in a way that ultimately will serve our purposes. So that's why we're doing this. But look at some examples specifically between the trumpets and the bowls. So the second trumpet and the second bowl. All we're looking for here is sequence within the parallelism. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Here's the second trumpet. Then the second angel sounded. Well, what happens? Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. You'll find a lot of this type of uh, uh, material in the trumpets. A third of this, a third of that. And when you go further along to the bowls, you find that there's an increased measure. Oftentimes it's not just a third of something, but the whole thing. So if you look at the second bowl, uh, keep your finger on the second trumpet there, but turn to the second bowl, chapter 16, verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. So notice the second trumpet is poured out uh, with the, the great mountain falling into the sea, a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea die, a third of the ships in the sea are destroyed. And so the second bowl is poured out on the sea. There's parallelism. And it became as uh, blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now, without even trying to get into the, answering the question why there's a sequence or why there is this development, I just want to point out that there is development in the second trumpet it's a third of the living creatures that die and in the second bowl judgment it's explicit that every living creature dies now what sense would it make if these were entirely parallel it's just the same event it doesn't make any sense there's clearly a development there is a sequence and a chronology that yes has an order that corresponds and yet a sequence to it. There's a third and now it's all of them. That's a difference that we can observe just in the text, regardless of our ultimate interpretation of the book. Well, let's look at the third trumpet in relation to the third bowl. So if you go back to the trumpets, chapter 8, verse 10, the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers, and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. That is bitterness. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And you look at chapter 16, verse 4. We're back in the bowls now. The third bowl. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. Okay, notice in the third trumpet, it was... A third of the rivers and the springs of water, here we're told that it's poured out on the rivers and springs of water. doesn't mention that it's merely a fraction. And they, presumably all of them, became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, and and so on it goes. Another example, the fourth trumpet to the fourth bowl. So we go back to the trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And you go back to chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, the fourth bowl judgment. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Not a third of it, but the sun in its entirety. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. So first, the sun is not giving its light, it's a third of it. Now, the, the full sun is actually doing the opposite, scorching with great heat, and they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. So, yes, there's a parallelism it, in, in each case, it deals with a similar object, but there's a difference, and there is a development in these cases. Now, why are we studying this? What is the point here? The point of this study is so that we would understand when we go to a specific passage. So, the the passage that we're eventually going to get to, probably no more than one or two more sermons in this series. But the passage that we want to get to to address our main theme of the advance of Christ's kingdom in the world is going to be chapter 19. In chapter 19, we find the Lord Jesus Christ on a white horse. Uh, He's identified as the Word of God and he has a sword coming out of his mouth which is a symbol of the Word of God. And by that sword of the Word of God, he defeats his enemies, in particular, the, the, the apostate persecutors, the beast and the false prophet. Remember the false prophet who speaks like a dragon but has horns like a lamb, you see. Presenting himself in a way similar to Christ as a religious leader, as a savior of sorts, and yet speaking demonic heresy with the voice of a dragon. Here we find Christ defeating his enemies, defeating the rebellious ten kingdoms of the beast, defeating the seven-hilled city, the harlot, defeating the false prophet, who leads many astray. And he defeats them by his word. And verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. This Reminds us of Psalm 110 as well, the scepter that goes out of Zion. But here you have that iron rod of Psalm 2. Notice the way in which he establishes this judgment, this victory, this conquest, this triumph is through his word. His name is the word of God and he is speaking his word and it's a sharp sword, a double edged sword, living and active, piercing and convicting, sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies and he strikes the nations with the rod of his might and strength. But then notice, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. The word rule in Greek is the word shepherd. Not the word merely for a king ruling over or you know Christ at the last day condemning his enemies and in that sense bearing rule and sway over them. But it says literally in the Greek, he himself will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Which brings our minds to Psalm 23. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He conquers the nations through His Word. He establishes His scepter and His rod, shepherding them. Shepherding the same nations that He struck. So this is not the final judgment. Christ destroying His enemies and sending them to hell. But this is Christ defeating the nations and bringing them into subjection under His feet. And then being the Good Shepherd who leads them beside still waters and restores their soul. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and therefore He stamps out wickedness and deception and idolatry and destroys the beast and the false prophet and yet He shepherds the nations that He conquers. Now, there's no way for us to know whether that interpretation that I've given is accurate, unless we get a little bit deeper into the main characters, especially the antagonists in this book, uh, and until we get a little bit more into some of the details that will help us to view chapter 19 in its proper context. Otherwise, you could say, well, that was persuasive, but I just don't understand the context. So that's what we're going to do in at least maybe one or two more sermons We're going to dive in to to get a better sense of the main characters, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot, and, and so forth, so that we understand the context and can receive encouragement from this prophecy. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and understanding And even discernment and prudence, that we would not, as it were, seek to decipher the seven thunders and delve into the secret things of the Most High, but rather that we would make sense of the basic building blocks that you've provided in your word, that we would be confident that if we read this book prayerfully, meditatively, and diligently, And if we pay close attention to faithful instruction and resources, that you will increase our knowledge of this book. And by doing so, you'll increase our confidence in Christ. That we may ride forth confidently and boldly with Him. That we may be victorious over the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Not loving our own lives, but even giving our own lives up unto the death.